Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a soulful and sacred life. So today's guest, Charles Eisenstein, has been challenging my thinking on all sorts of topics for about 15 years now but never more so than with his latest book, Climate, A New Story. And basically, and stay with me here, Eisenstein argues that focusing all of our environmental activism on reducing greenhouse gas emissions to combat global warming is a bad idea, and it's not going to solve our problem. So you might be thinking at this point, uh-oh, has Howie gone off the deep end? Is he interviewing climate skeptics, climate deniers, is he some sort of tinfoil hat wearing member of, <laughs> you know, all the, all these thoughts are going through my head, like how you're going to judge me for daring to have a conversation that questions the dominant climate narrative. And let me let me push you at ease because I'm a card carrying member of the enlightened, scientifically literate, progressive wing of the American populace. And of course, I know that human created climate change is the single greatest threat to our civilization and that the biggest thing we can do to combat it is to reduce our carbon footprint individually and collectively. Heck, that's one of the best arguments I use for eating a plant based diet. It fights climate change. It's better than switching from a Hummer to a Prius or never traveling in an airplane again. And of course, since I want as many people to go plant-based as I possibly can, of course, I will deploy this convenient, terrifying climate narrative, which, of course, 97% of climate scientists agree with, to add one more reason to the mix when I talk to people about adopting a plant-based diet. Because after all, the last thing I want to do is stand with the crazy, greedy, deluded, ignorant climate skeptics, right? Well, after reading Climate, A New Story, I kind of have a different view on the whole topic. And I would like to share that view with you in this interview with Charles Eisenstein. Here, here's the basic. Here, well, here are some of the basic points he makes. The Earth, or as uh, Eisenstein calls our home, Gaia, is quite sick. Uh, rising temperatures is one symptom just as like a high fever might be a symptom of an infection in a person. And think about how we would treat a symptom in a sick person. If it's a fever, we're going to give them an aspirin because the pharmaceutical industry treats symptoms and ignores root causes. 
And Eisenstein argues that the environmental movement has become mired in reductionist treatment of symptoms rather than addressing root causes. Says, Eisenstein says that our planet is not healthy. We're, we're living on a dying planet. Look at, look at the organs of this planet, the forests, the wetlands, the oceans, the prairies. They have been destroyed and are continually to be destroyed and polluted by human beings. Insect populations are plummeting. The bees are dying. There are superbugs that now withstand all our antibiotics. And a sick planet is going to be brought down by something like increased carbon emissions, increased greenhouse gases. A healthy planet will have the resilience to absorb a lot of that. And let's, let's dig deeper, he says. The root cause of our mistreatment of Earth is that we don't view the Earth as sacred. And until we return from our illusion of separation, this story that human beings must control and dominate and bend all the forces of nature in the universe to our instrumental will so that we see every animal, every landmass, every tree, every prairie, every ocean as something, as some sort of product that we can turn into a commodity, that we can turn into cash, then nothing we do will help restore the planet. And he sees, he sees climate change as actually the climate crisis as an initiation into a new way of being. It's not just, okay, so let's put tubes in the sky to suck carbon. It's not simply switching to renewable fuel sources so that we can continue our addiction to energy or continue our addiction to improving our so-called quality of life by having more square footage, by having more stuff. Eisenstein is really saying that we need to grow up on this planet and treat it as sacred and treat trees as sacred, animals as sacred, places as sacred, and each other as sacred. That is going to be the root of planetary healing, not simply addressing carbon emissions. In fact, if we approach climate change like we approach our other problems with a war, like the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on disease, the war on cancer, the war on agricultural pests, how are we doing with those? If we have a war on carbon emissions, we will fail because warlike thinking is the cause of the problem. And we need a different mindset to find our way out of it. Because as you know, there's a fierce battle going on, whether climate change is real. And if it is, whether it's our fault, and if it is, whether there's anything we can do about it. And like all wars, this one demands that we choose sides. So if you were to truly suspect me of being a climate skeptic or denier, you probably would dismiss me and this podcast out of hand. So I'm going to ask you, please listen to this conversation and please go get Climate, a new story by Charles Eisenstein and read it. It's essentially a work of politics, economics, history, and science that takes spirituality seriously. In fact, you can pretty much map the teachings of Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, directly onto climate. So if you've ever wondered what enlightened public policy would truly look like, Charles Eisenstein is as good a guide as any I've come across. So I'm thrilled that he agreed to share an hour with us, and I look forward to some spirited and respectful and loving discussion and debate from the listeners of this podcast. Two quick announcements before we get started. First, in case you didn't realize it, Sick to Fit, the book that I wrote with Josh Lajani, is available on Amazon in paperback. So if you're not a digital person, which I am not, I prefer to get all my books in forms that uh, 
have actual weight. You can pick one up for under 10 bucks. So why not buy a box of 50 and solve all your gift giving problems for the next three years? Second, if you'd like to become a certified WellStart wellness coach, if you'd like to help people improve their lifestyles, improve their diets, improve their health outcomes, and you want a plant-based slant to it, check out wellstartcoach.com. We'll be starting a new cohort in March. All right, so now let's talk about climate, let's talk about healing, and let's talk about love. Without further ado, Charles Eisenstein, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Howard. So I, w I want to talk to you about uh, your new book, Climate, A New Story. And I have to say, I've been, I've been immersed in it, and it's, it's kind of reminded me of a whole bunch of really important things. Like I was going to write a, a sales letter today for, for a service that I'm providing, and I stopped mm -hmm. because I realized I was coming at it from a wonky place. Like this, this book has just reminded me of so many truths. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's about climate, but it's about so much more. So I just, I just want to start by, by thanking you. Um, it feels like you've, you've, you've kind of helped me get back into uh, the correct lane. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, I mean, I guess, you know, from reading the book that I think that the climate crisis is a symptom of something much deeper and that much deeper something, call it the old story or whatever you want to call it, it infiltrates our minds and our habits and our relationships in every realm. So, yeah, like totally it affects how you conduct your business or your, your life. Yeah. And I, re and I realized as I'm reading it, like, I've read all your other books. I think start. I think two thousand and one was your first. Was the yoga of eating around that? Um, around then, maybe yeah, a couple years after that, I think. Oh three, maybe. But I've, yeah. I've been reading your stuff since then, and every time I read another one of your books, or attend a talk, or listen to your podcast, or visit your website, or get one of your articles, it's like, oh yeah, I, I keep remembering that I forget to take this vitamin. Like you feel, <laughs> you know, it's, it's of course it's not just you, but. For, so, for some reason, I think maybe because we have similar backgrounds, the way you present these ideas can infiltrate my mind better than maybe like a, you know, a Tibetan guru, yogi or a, mm -hmm. or a monk or something like that. Um, yeah, because we're coming from the same cultural matrix. Yeah, yeah. And you're and you're writing. You're, you know, I find it very reassuring and charming that you're arguing with yourself all the time. In your books, you're mm -hmm. saying, like, as I write this, this other voice in my head is saying, you know, bullshit, or this is this is right. embarrassing. Um, so let's let's start with because I feel like it's the same. You know, you're you're giving us the same insight throughout everything you've written in the last you know 16, 17 years, and it's about sort of the story of of interbeing versus the story of separation. Can we just you know start there and lay that on the table? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess the the lens through which I'm seeing the changes that are happening in our society is the lens of narrative, or you could even say the lens of mythology, because I'm speaking about uh, the deepest narratives that that we understand reality from, understand ourselves. It's it's like the basic cultural story that tells us who we are, how the world works, what's important, what's valuable, and so on, and this story 
gives birth to higher level stories that are still very deep. The stories that we call politics or money. I mean, money is a story as well. So, yeah, and, and these stories, the, or I'll say these myths, the story of separation, for example, are, are reaching a point of metamorphosis, a point where they are um, giving way to uh, a new story, or, or I would say a new and ancient story. So, yeah, the story of separation basically answers the deep questions of life by saying who you are is a separate individual. You are uh, a soul encased in flesh. You are a genetically programmed reproductive self-interest maximizing biological machine. You are a mind looking out through the brain onto the world, but whatever it is, separate. And then from that, we see, like from that, it, it naturally comes that that your well-being comes through um, dominating the world outside of the separate self, outcompeting the other separate selves who are also trying to maximize their self-interest. So if you want to succeed and be safe from natural forces and impose your intelligence onto the world and collectively for humanity to impose our intelligence onto the world, then we have to perfect the technologies of control and the practices of domination. So all of that, all of the things that we, we castigate ourselves or, or society for, the damage that we're doing to the ecosystems, all of that is a natural outcome of the, the story that, that we are taking for granted as reality itself. And, and it, that story has never, the dominance of that story has never been total. There have always been, for example, esoteric traditions in religion that offer a different story. Um, there have always been people on earth, there still are people on earth who hold a different story that's actually a lot older. And these lineages and these threads back into the past are kind of, you could say, these rhizomes that are ready now to give birth to the fruiting body of a new story, new to us, but actually very ancient. And I, I use Thich Nhat Hanh's word for it, the story of interbeing, which, which is, you know, it goes beyond interdependency or interconnection, because interdependency or interconnection kind of says, yeah, we're separate, but we need each other mm -hmm. conditionally to meet our uh, needs. To we need the forests to make oxygen. We need we need the other beings. Otherwise, we'll die. But interbeing says that we depend on them not only conditionally, but that their being is part of our being. And if a rainforest gets destroyed, or if a species goes extinct, something within ourselves has died as well. And we become poorer, existentially poorer. So from the story of interbeing, we have a very different kind of technology, kind of different medicine, different education, different economy, different politics. Like even in a personal relationship or in a community relationship, if you understand that you're not really separate, then it's no longer true that 
your good fortune comes at my expense. But we can understand that what's good for one is good for all. Or we can understand that the the uh, full expression of your gifts is going to enrich me too. So I'm not saying that this is true in every situation, but it's a different lens. It's a different default perspective that is rising in our time. And so, yeah, so anyway, I'm sorry to, to go on so long, but basically what I do in my work is I, I look at these different institutions and systems, medicine, economy, technology, and so on, and say, what would they look like from the story of interbeing? Like if they were built on the understanding that we're not separate from each other, we're not separate from nature, then what would they look like? And how can we transition from the old story to the new story? Right. So, so I, I want to kind of, um, I want to jump somewhere that probably doesn't quite make sense to to our listeners yet. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stay a little bit linear, which is what's the problem with the story of separation? Like we've, we've, had, it, well, we've had it for a long time. It just makes so much sense to me. It's like I look out the window and I see a bunch of things that aren't me. Yeah. And it's not that it's not that they are identical to you. It's more that who you are is the totality of the relationships between you and all of these things. And if you strip away all these relationships, then what's left is nothing but a but a point of attention. And so I could get you know more metaphysical about this, but basically it's it's just to understand that that you're connected to everything and that also that you're not the only intelligence in the world or that humans are not the only intelligence but we are in a world that's that's full of beings full of intelligence full of consciousness from on every level the cosmos the planet um even our bodies have an intelligence that's um distinct from the intelligence of our minds. Um, our cells have an intelligence. And when we understand that, then, so just to apply it to healing, instead of trying to impose intelligence on a body that is just a machine, we can seek to unlock the intelligence that's already there or feed it information that it needs in order to return um, to wholeness, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So, yeah, and I, I, I'll just say also that one reason that it's not that the story of separation is wrong. I would say that it's a it's it's a very very narrow <clears throat> narrow spectrum narrow narrow band of the spectrum of reality. You can do amazing things from the story of separation. You can build skyscrapers. You can you can build nuclear weapons. I mean, you can do amazing things, but there's a limit to what you can do. We have, we thought that we were going to be able to use reason, technology, and, and I specifically the technologies of control to build a perfect society. And we would live in paradise by now. In the 1950s, the 1960s, this was an incredibly futuristic year. We were supposed to have robot servants and <laughs> infinite lifespans and space colonies, you know, and the world was going to look like the Jetsons by this time. And 
instead we have a uh, an ecosphere that is um, degenerating. We have social degeneration. We have economic degeneration. Uh, healthcare. I mean, lifespans are, aren't even increasing anymore in the United States. Uh, not to mention levels of well-being and happiness. I mean, like something like one in six people in the U.S. is on psychiatric medication. You know, it's it's um, look at the opioid crisis, the epidemic of suicide. Uh, I mean, this is not a healthy society. So the 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 promise that goes back several centuries of that reason, science, technology are going to help us create a perfect world that promises wearing thin. And instead, we see all these crises that are, in fact, birthed by the story of separation. The ecological crisis is a direct result of seeing ourselves as separate from nature. And what we do to nature isn't going to affect us. So basically, the, the big picture is that the story of separation gives birth to the crises that transition us out of the story of separation. So, so here, here's, here's my like personal problem is that I, I see myself as a really good guy and I try to solve all these problems as I can or, 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 you know, either solve them or, or comment on them. But I'm firmly ensconced in this worldview of separation because it seems so natural. It seems so default. It seems like the only way to really see the world. And as a result, I get to demonize all the people who are polluting, who are engaged in, um, in, you know, sex trafficking, who are doing all the bad things. And I'm trying, I'm trying to overcome them, mm-hmm. right? Cause, cause I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm on the left. I'm a, I'm a liberal. Um, and, and so whenever I read one of your books or I hear you talk and then I post something on Facebook, everyone either thinks I'm evil or stupid. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Like I, you posted something. Um, I posted something that you had you had written a few, like five years ago about like is feminism really about taking women and putting them in positions of power in this culture that still degrades the environment and and you know uh, oppresses brown people in third world countries? Like is that what we want? And I posted that, and like several like my you know women friends were like. You know what? Don't tell. You know, like whenever, whenever I try to to move to a different story, I get so much blowback from people that I see as virtuous. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. That was I was just pointing out that I think I have that in this in my book too. That the original like radical feminists of the sixties and seventies, they weren't just trying to keep the patriarchy, but put women in positions of power uh, instead of men to, to replace the men in the same system. They wanted a fundamentally different system, like a, non, <clears throat> a non-patriarchal system. It doesn't change the basic power dynamics and injustice of the system to have, you know, Margaret Thatcher in there instead of John Major or to have Hillary Clinton in there instead of Donald Trump if they're going to be wreaking the same uh, military havoc around the world. Like that's not a very deep revolution. And these, these, the, you know, feminists of the sixties and seventies, they were, they were politically astute and they were radical. So 
this isn't just like something Charles Eisenstein is saying. This is and the same thing with Martin Luther King, you know, like he didn't want to keep society the same and install black people. And he wouldn't say that, well, OK, now we have black generals and black CEOs. Therefore, my work is done. Mm-hmm. He wanted I mean, he was fundamentally a peace worker. He he was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh. saying, like, yeah, his I have a dream speech wasn't like I dream that that black and white soldiers will run together in the jungle and and yeah, and <laughs> and, and topple other governments who are trying to uh, alleviate poverty. And I mean, right. So anyway, but yeah, like, but this does get down to what you were saying about, you know, thinking that we're on the good side and the world will be a better place when we finally defeat the evil side. What that leads to is a polarized political landscape that is actually getting uh, more and more extreme. And and so you see, like in, in political culture now, you see uh, each side embracing any narrative, any any information that will or any argument that will harm the other side, even if it goes against the things that they've been standing for, for, for years. So like the Democrats, they're supposed to be theoretically, at least, um, in favor of disarmament, you know, and, and peace. And the Republicans are supposed to be the war, the warmongering party. Um, but now it's the Democrats that are whipping up hysteria against Russia and, you know, saying that Donald Trump isn't aggressive enough in his foreign policy. And now, um, now, Republicans in in polls, there was a Glenn Greenwald article on this, um, are more anti-war than Democrats. And I'm sure that if it's a Democratic president that wants to pull back from Afghanistan or Syria or somewhere, then that'll flip again. So it becomes a matter of your side winning. And then a lot of politics becomes uh, a feel-good exercise in thinking that you're on the right side. And I'm not saying that both sides are equal, and I'm not saying that that it doesn't matter who wins. Like, all I'm pointing out is that it's turned into this kind of sports contest where winning, because you know your side is right, you know your side is good, you're on team good, so, of course, anything that you can do to win is going to be good for, for the country and good for the world because you're the good guy. And, and therefore, any data point that challenges your goodness and rightness, whether it's true or not, must be excluded categorically because it's going to harm your chances of victory. And that's why... That's why um, narratives have become weaponized. That's why the news has um, has separated out into two distinct universes, where if you're in one of those universes, you have to you think that you'd have to be crazy in order to vote for somebody in the other universe because they're not even accepting the basic facts. They must be total deluded fools. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I could say a lot more about it, but that's yeah. Well, that's I, the situation. I, yeah, I think that's a good introduction to the, the topic of climate change. 
And so just to, to kind of frame it for you, so this podcast and my work is largely around, you know, uh, a plant-based lifestyle. So eating, you know, less meat, more plant. And, th and there's a very strong narrative in the plant-based community, like that th this is the way to solve climate change because eating more plants will, you know, we'll have less cows, we'll have less CAFOs, less methane. Um, right. Right. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth in that. How, however, what, what, what I, what I realized after reading your book is that I'm part of a climate change narrative and push that's not helping that we're, we're not going to make things better because we're, we're attacked, attacking a symptom. And so I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd love for you to talk about, you know, in terms of like how, like, you know, just kind of pr present the, what you see as the straw man argument that, uh, that all of us will recognize on, on, on the liberal left and on the pro-science intelligentsia side as here's, here's what's happening with the earth. Here's the climate argument. And then, you know, I'd love for you to kind of explain what's missing from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the general principles that I work with is that in any polarized debate, the uh, key to progress lies in the things that both sides actually agree on unconsciously <laughs> and in the questions that neither side asks. So there's usually a way to, to reframe things and to ask different questions that unlocks the debate or offers. Um, it's not a compromise, but it's a third way. So in the case of climate, one of the, one of the uh, different lenses that I offer is the lens of water that, that says that the um, derangement of our global climate and weather systems has more to do with water than it does to do with greenhouse gases, that disruptions in the water cycle are far more damaging than uh, CO2 emissions. And I have all kinds of you know, science and, and reasoning uh, around this. Um, a lot of it has to do with soil and forests and what happens when you cut down forests and you plow up soil and expose it to uh, erosion. And it no longer can soak up the rain. So it, so it runs off, creating big floods. And then after it's run off, because it's not it hasn't been sponged up into the soil, then you have a drought because because the um, moisture held in soil that's transpired by the trees extends the rainy season and creates moisture conditions. Not to mention that that natural ecosystems actually seed cloud formation through various aromatic chemicals and and even bacteria that that live in the plants and so forth. It's like you have to understand Earth as a as a physiology, not as a machine where you can tweak one or two variables, like as if you were changing the air fuel mixture in a diesel engine and expect it. It's not that simple. So, so yeah. So then if you want to talk about agriculture, um, especially through the lens of water, but also to some extent, I mean, carbon's important too, because carbon equals soil. The word organic, as far as organic agriculture goes, that was invented, um, first used by J.I. Rodale. And why did he use the word organic? It refers to organic molecules, i.e. soil containing molecules, I mean, carbon containing molecules in the soil, increasing carbon content in the soil, uh, building 
building humus, building topsoil. That's what organic agriculture is supposed to be, not as it is today where you have gigantic fields covered in plastic so that you don't have to use herbicides. Have you seen those? Like that's organic um, or hydroponic factories with don't even have any soil at all. I mean, yeah, I like I would prefer to eat that than something that's doused with Roundup, but it's not good for the environment, whether it's raising vegetables or grain or um, or meat. It's if you're harming the soil and you're harming the water. Then you are harming the planet. And yeah, so what's the, the most damaging practices? They are industrial practices. So I would like to shift the conversation away from, you know, meat versus vegan to industrial agriculture versus local agriculture um, versus, you know, industrial agriculture, commodity agriculture versus place-based agriculture, relational agriculture, community-based agriculture, where people are directly involved in the production of their food. That is uh, actually a much deeper transition, I think, than just applying industrial methods to produce vegetables rather than meat. It's, I mean, whether, whether you're producing meat or um, grain or, or vegetables, industrial methods are horrendous, horrendously damaging. Whether, whether, yeah. Um, I mean, the worst are the confinement feedlots. Like that's uh, horrible for, for the water. Um, but you know, those, those, uh, um, conventionally grown grains and, and soybeans, those are terrible too. I mean, what they do to the, the soil is basically dead in those places. The soil becomes, there's no earthworms in it. There's no mycelium. There's nothing. It's just like this inert medium where you add chemicals and you take away food. So that's, um, yeah. And so basically what I'm saying in the book is, is we need to understand that earth is alive, that soil is alive, even that water is alive, that, that an ecosystem is a community of life and is itself alive. Then we can relate to it with reverence, with respect, with love, because there is something alive. And I would even go farther than that. I would say that there's something conscious that we can love and that we can be in relationship to. And if we don't go there, then all we can hope for is that we become a little more clever in how we deploy the, quote, resources of this planet. But that's not, that's not, I mean, that might be involve, you know, some external systems change, but that doesn't get to the core. The core is our alienation from a living planet. From that place, we're going to do harm no matter what. Right. And, and say, so, I mean, the, your chapter on, you know, the spectrum, the climate change spectrum and beyond really blew me away. Because I think what, you know, what, in the chapter earlier, you talked about the, the, the key problem is reductionism, where mm -hmm. we're trying, we're trying to convert living things into numbers, we're trying to create to convert complex systems into the, the equivalent of diesel engines. And, and almost everyone I know, myself included, has been thinking about the climate change debate 
in those terms. Can, can you talk about why that's inadequate, just to reduce everything to greenhouse gases and carbon emissions? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's very attractive because then all you have to do is set a carbon budget and you can evaluate every action and every policy based on how much carbon it's going to produce or how much carbon it's going to sequester. So it fits easily into a linear quantitative way of thinking about the world. The problem is, or one problem is, that it um, leaves out the things that we can't put a number on, which in the quantitative mind, well, that's okay. If you can't put a number on it, it's not real. What's important is to get those carbon numbers down. So then uh, something like um, uh, getting lead out of the water in Flint, Michigan, or um, uh, banning Roundup, banning glyphosate, um, you know, like, how do you put a number on that? That's not going to, that's not going to be as high a priority or saving the sea turtles. Or here's a big one for me lately, ending um, seismic testing and testing of Navy sonar in the ocean, which is deafening whales, like whales are, or, or even like killing whales, getting, giving, giving them, it's so loud. It's like, it'd be like if I went into your neighborhood and set off 165 decibel air guns every 10 seconds, night and day for weeks and months at a time. Mm -hmm. That's how it is for the whales and the dolphins. Well, okay, we all think that that's bad, but it's not a threat to the planet because what's the effect on carbon of those things? Put a number on that. <clears throat> so if we have numbers-based policy, then that kind of thing gets um, relegated to second, secondary status. It becomes a lower priority. But when you understand Earth as a living being, then you know that any harm to its organs, like the whales, or the forests, or the coral reefs, any harm to its organs is going to cause the planet to die of organ failure, or it's going to reduce the resiliency of the planet. And, and so from that perspective, wow, we better stop that seismic testing because the whales can't communicate anymore. It's, it's like they stop singing. Mm. What's the carbon score of that? I mean, actually, it probably does affect carbon because everything is interconnected. And now if the whales are deafened, um, they can't coordinate their migrations anymore and bring nutrients from their feeding grounds to their birthing grounds. Um, they transfer enormous amount of nutrients that allow uh, life to thrive in the places where they give birth. So they, they, you know, actually whales are part of a nutrient transport system and part of a, a marine physiology. And so they bring the nutrients and then uh, kelp can grow and, and shellfish can grow and they sequester carbon with through their shells. So you could say, well, actually, whales do have a carbon score. Sure, but, but, but it's unpredictable. Right. You can't. You can't. Right. It's like, what, like, like yeah. that stuff when they return the wolves to Yellowstone and they right. just like all the, the downstream benefits that no one was predicting. Right. Right. So that's that's right. So I think that we need. Um, um, an ecological holistic understanding as a guide to our collective choices and not a carbon budget. And if you do like, see, that's the, the, the other thing is that, I mean, take seismic testing 
um, that's done to explore for oil and gas. So if if you say, okay, like, and this is a, a thought experiment I go into my book, I say, okay, what if the climate skeptics are right? What if the recent warming is just the rising part of a sine wave, not a you know, endlessly rising curve? What if they're right that it was warmer in the medieval warm period and the Roman warm period and the Minoan warm period and the early Holocene? What if, um, I mean, there's all these things that they have, they have like, <clears throat> it's like one of these alternate universes, right? The climate skeptic universe. What if they're right? Well, from the living planet view and from the, the reverence for life view, I would still be opposed to seismic testing. I would still be opposed to drilling offshore for oil and gas because the oil spills devastate marine life. I would still be opposed to tar sands excavation. I mean, have you seen like the forests that are replaced by these pits and and toxic pools, you know, and wastelands? No, none of that. Yeah, no mountaintop removal, no fracking, no pipelines. Yeah, but Actually, you're, you're, you're saying that the evidence of my eyes, that looking at something and deeming it ugly and looking at and, and thinking of whales and feeling like crying in sorrow is, is as good a measure of what we should be doing as like the science establishment measuring carbon and carbon offsets. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, ignore science. Science is a way to expand the, the scope of our vision so that we can see things we couldn't have seen before. And I think that, um, I mean, I do, I do, I do think that, that we should cut carbon emissions, um, that high levels of greenhouse gases put more stress on a system that is already severely degraded through ecocide. I mean, the, the organs of this planet are really stressed. Half of all the mangroves are gone. 80% of the seagrass meadows in New England are gone. Um, there's, there's, there's almost no high grass prairie left in North America. Like all of the, the systems that maintain a really strong, resilient planet have been degraded. What's left? I mean, the Amazon is still left, most of it. Um, the Congo. These are, if I were in, if I were like world dictator, I would say first priority is to preserve those. Those need to be absolutely sacrosanct because Gaia's knowledge of health still is intact in those places. It's a reservoir of the memory of health for the planet. Second priority is regeneration, to restore, to reforest, to, to rebuild soil, regenerative agriculture. Um, so first conservation, we need marine conservation zones. There was one proposal to put half of all the world's oceans in marine conservation zones. Like, yeah, let's do stuff like that. Third priority is to stop dousing the entire landscape in pesticides. Um, and, and toxic pollution and I hate to say it, but, uh, radio and microwave pollution, electromagnetic pollution. I mean, this is, if you look into 5g, um, and some of the, uh, non-mainstream information about that, it's pretty horrifying what it does to humans and what it does to insects and, and wildlife. And then my fourth priority still important, but fourth is to cut greenhouse gases. 
but that would be a natural byproduct of the first three anyway. Right. But what what I'm what I'm getting at is you're giving me permission to trust my heart, right? So you know, so environmentalists are degraded as as, as tree huggers, and some of us have have adopted that as a, as a, as a as a term of pride in the same way that any minority that get you know that gets labeled with something may may try to um you know to appropriate it but yeah. but like to say like I am a tree hugger like literally say that I love nature I love trees I love walking I saw a little snail crossing the road this morning and like you know with with your book in my ear like my heart went out to this little slimy guy yeah. Like that that's it's not only you know it's not something to be ashamed of and in fact it's it's as worthy as a driver of policy as all the scientific think tanks that are coming that are just reducing things to to numbers. And I I just I just find yeah. I find that so empowering and beautiful. Right. Yeah, there was a part of my book where where I said okay, you know, environmentalist you might give arguments about well we need to to cut greenhouse gases or we need to preserve this or do that because if we don't here are the bad things that'll happen to us here are the economic costs and they're trying to speak the language of policy because that's what counts in policy it's the costs and benefits but I'm, i say but come on admit it that's not the real reason why you're doing this the real reason is because you're a tree hugger you're a bird lover you're a butterfly watcher you're a, 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 a turtle caresser, you know, <laughs> like that's who you are. Come on, like admit it. Um, it's not that you're making some implicit rational calculation that ecocide is going to eventually harm you or your grandchildren, even if it weren't like, and that was another, that's another thought experiment I do. I say, okay, well, suppose we could get away with it. Suppose we had the technology, had the know-how and the capability to replace every ecosystem service with a technological service, to replace the forests that produce oxygen with concrete algae pools, to have carbon sucking machines to maintain atmospheric balance, to have bubble cities that keep out all the toxic pollution, um, to have vat grown food that tastes almost as good or just as good thanks to the miracle of chemistry. Um, and, and what if we could create a world like that, a gigantic strip mine and waste dump with bubble cities and beautiful digital displays of nature scenes, VR of nature, um, to replace the nature that's gone and dead and rising lifespans and higher literacy and all the things that Steven Pinker says prove that the world is better and better. What if we could create that world? Nature gone and dead, but humans just fine. Would we do it? Would you want to do that? And if you do not want that, then you have to have some other argument besides metrics of, of human well-being. You need some other reason. When someone says, well, why should I care? Why, why should we preserve the rainforest? Why should we preserve the whales? What, what reason can you give besides if you don't, bad things will happen to you? The only reason is because we love them, because they are sacred. That's the reason we need to step into. And so, yeah, like that's that starts on a very personal level. 
it starts on a ceremonial level. It starts by, by giving attention and care to whatever form of life presents itself to you. And as you do that, you, you strengthen the field of love for life that eventually affects our systems, our politics. But that's where it's got to come from. Not, okay, we're going to be a little bit more clever about maximizing human well-being. And it's not even working. Yeah, we have higher lifespans. We have higher literacy. We have higher GDP. We have more floor space per capita twice as much as two generations ago. So we're, 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 we're better off, right? Happier than we were in 1960, right? No, <laughs> it's not even working. And the reason is that we are not separate from the rest of life. Even if we can insulate ourselves from the um, consequences that we can measure. The unmeasurable consequences still get in under our under our fortress walls, and we're miserable. Well, and and you begin the book by pointing out that the 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 consensus narrative from the left is that we're addicted to fossil fuels. And, yeah, and you jump on that word addiction and take it very literally, and say like what you know addiction is something that we do to make up for some deep lack. Yeah. Right. So, right. so that, yeah. So, and I could, and, and, and you have this, um, um, this paragraph that you quote from your previous book, the, the more beautiful world our, our hearts know is possible that like had, had me, I was trying to read it to my wife and I was like, you know, crying, <laughs> trying to get the words out. I, I'm, I'm not finding it in the, I didn't write down what page it was on, but you know how much basically you start out. How much of how much ugly do we need to compensate for a, a loss of beauty? How many adventure movies do we have to watch to compensate for a lack of true adventure in our lives? Like mm -hmm. right, like the addiction, right. the whole addiction model of, of you know addictive food or drugs or sex or or work is is based on the fact that we're you know it's infinite because we're never going to meet our needs. We're never going to get our need for vitamin C from M and M's. Right. And and so, you you know, you def like, talk, talk about what you think the need is that we are fueling with our addictions to, to fuel. Yeah. Um, you know what? Maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll go grab that. Uh, um, that passage. Um, okay. I can probably find it online. Very oh, here, here, here it is. Page two. Oh, page two oh nine. Okay. And and the and I was reading just to to to, um, to bookend it. The two parts of the book that have like you know that pierced me um, was that paragraph, which obviously I read you know six years ago, but it didn't it didn't stick in the same way. And the woman in India who was talking about how what happened when her family became wealthy, mm -hmm. and they all and everybody moved away, and there was no one to hear the couples argue, and there was no one for the children to play with. Now that they all had their own homes and right. and they had higher standards of living and like those are those right. two were sort of the the narratives that broke my heart yeah um yeah according to every metric that woman's family's better off you know they're they're they each have their own house they have more floor space per family member they have higher income 
Um, they're producing and purchasing more goods and services. Um, they all now have access to childcare and they can all pay for childcare. But when she was growing up, they didn't need to pay for childcare because there were dozens of kids in the household, this extended, extended family. They were always, they always had playmates. There was never, there was not, there was no such thing as a play date. You know, there was no such thing as boredom. And they had free reign of the outdoors around them. That was their territory. That was their turf. So, yeah, that's it illustrates the problem with metrics is that it leaves out the things that you can't measure that are unmeasurable or that you simply choose not to measure because it's inconvenient. But usually what's measured are the things that contribute to the interests of the people doing the measuring. The things that they think are important. And who gets left out? And, and, Those who are, and as you as you said, like we, what we don't measure is could be defined as our shadow. Right. Right. We don't. It's not like we're deliberately leaving them out. So they don't even they don't even we don't even think about counting them. Right. It just doesn't seem important to us. Like we don't even know to measure it. Right. Um, I was with a, a woman recently who works with uh, one of the Kogi mamas. You know, the Kogi are this um, uh, indigenous nation in, in Colombia um, that are very, very, very traditional in their practices. And um, they call themselves elder brother and us younger brother. And they're like, younger brother is messing things up here. We need to teach him some things about how to run a, a planet, you know. Um, and they're really big into ceremony. And and they say that um, they say a lot of stuff that echoes what I say in my book, that, that um, there are certain special places on Earth that are the deep reservoirs of the mind of the planet and the health of the planet. And if you destroy those, then the planet will die. Uh, they also speak a lot about ceremony and the importance of doing the right ceremonies in, in sacred places on Earth or places where there's been trauma, places that need healing. So one of them uh, was out in California uh, and, and he's like, this is a few years ago, he's like, you better do some ceremonies here, here and here. Because if you don't, there are going to be really bad fires. And his words were not heeded. And turns out there were really bad fires. And he came back the next year and he said, you have to do ceremonies here, here, and here, or the fires will even be worse next year. And that came true too. And then he came again, said the same thing. And they're like, how could it be any worse? And then this year there was the campfire that was even worse. So like this... And I've heard other indigenous people speak in this way too, basically saying that that humans and the rest of the planet have a covenant that is maintained through ceremony and maintained through res respectful relations with other beings. And the Gaia's part of the deal is to maintain a macro environment that's suitable for human habitation. And if we break our end of the deal, then the other end of the deal will not be upheld either. And we'll have climate derangement, fires, droughts, floods, and so forth. Like I've heard many indigenous people from totally different, I've heard Dogon people say pretty much the same thing. So 
you know, you can translate uh, whale well-being into the language of science. It's a lot harder to translate the beliefs of the Kogi or the Dogon into quantitative language, but it sure speaks to me and invites me. And I could say more uh, that, that, um, you know, having a intimate sacred relationship with other beings, it meets a deep need that to return to the addiction metaphor that if that need isn't met, then we compensate through consumption. Mm. There's a, a kind of a security in being enmeshed in a web of belonging, in community, in relation to nature, soil, plants, animals, the seasons, that, that makes us feel at home in the world. And that feeling of, and, and that's a deep kind of security. If you don't have that, you're going to be anxious you're going to be uh, depressed. You're going to always be hungry for something. You're going to be hungry for a bigger bank account, for more money, more security, more investments. But how much to, to maybe you want to read that little passage, like how much money do you need to have the kind of security that comes through deep relationships? No <laughs> amount is enough. Right. And, I, and I'm, I'm just thinking, I'll get to that paragraph, but I'm thinking like, you know, in my work, I teach people how to be healthy. And of course, people come to me largely because they want to lose weight, which is, you mm -hmm. know, sort of a, it's a numerical thing. And people do all sorts of things to lose weight. And a lot of them work from, you know, cocaine to, uh -huh. uh, you know, crazy diets to restriction. You know, they, they work for a while. And, and we're, and, but I'm trying to teach people like it's about if you do the things that will make you healthy. The weight will be an afterthought. It will be an accidental or incidental side effect. And I think you're saying the same thing about these Kogi ceremonies, that if your come from is we need to reduce greenhouse gases, we need to, to lower the temperature of the earth. Yeah, but if, if all we're doing is that, then we're going to manipulate ecosystems. We're going to we're going to destroy we're going to destroy land and displace peasants to put up biofuel. We're going to we're going to put up more dams. We're going to, you know, but right. but if our if our goal is the health and the healing and the, the the unity and beauty of the planet, then the carbon emissions are going to go down naturally without us making that the only thing that matters. Right. And if we don't do that stuff, then no matter how hard we try, we're not going to bring carbon emissions down. We've been trying since, you know, 1992 to bring them down. They're more than 50% higher than they were in 1992. We're swimming against the tide. Basically, we have a system that only works with increasing consumption, only works economically, only works psychologically because of these unmet needs that we have for community, intimacy, relationship, authenticity, um, belonging, and so forth. So we maintain those, but then we try to uh, limit the, the, the addictive meeting of those needs with, you know, a carbon tax or something like that. We haven't even done that. Like, it's, it's impossible, I think, to bring down carbon emissions when we live in a system that requires more and more consumption for its maintenance. Yeah. 
well, I'm, I'm not willing to have a lower standard of living, right? Just, and, and, and I, what, you're, what you're saying is like we're, we're thinking about this in terms of, well, we've got to, you know, uh, you know we're, we're screwed. We have to, you know, downsize. We right. need to have smaller. Like, like I need to have less of a life. And when you, when, yeah. when you describe this woman in India, like, God, would I love a compound with, with hundreds of, of, right. of beloveds that I know and, you know, cranky uncles that I can't stand. But just to, to be embedded, like, to have that safety, to feel a, a living planet under my feet, I would probably, you know, give up my noise-canceling headset and, and my iPad. Right. Yeah, like, that's a good example. Do you need a noise-canceling headset if you live somewhere where you don't hear highway noise and traffic and airplanes, but instead you hear birds and children playing and and the crickets you know you don't want noise canceling headsets then right. so basically we, we create a situation where we need more and more technology to insulate ourselves from the effects of all that technology i mean the same thing in the health in the health food thing you know like like you have, you import uh pristine supplements from iceland or from wherever like the uh, and and you know these fancy minerals and things like that when yeah like you need that when the soil has been so depleted um and when we're cut off from uh deep relationships to plants you know where we could where we would know um how to to nourish ourselves on subtle levels um so yeah um fighting the symptom um while letting the disease progress. That's what we're doing as a society. Right. And the, you know, the other thing you point out is that if we're using the language of self-interest and we're using carbon taxes and credits and basically bribes and threats, carrots and sticks, the way we always do in the story of separation, then we're just going to get a society that's doing just enough to, to not get caught. The same way you mm -hmm. described like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat my child like an automaton and make sure he has the proper nutrient, you know, quantities and the proper warmth, you know, proper t ambient temperature, as opposed to this boy I love. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way that, that, I mean, this is a, an outgrowth of the story of separation. You find a cause to attack um, something that's causing the problem. So you gave the example of weight loss, the, this is really similar to the mindset of, of, of carbon fundamentalism. You know, it's calorie fundamentalism. So that in that mindset, the way to lose weight is to eat less or burn more calories. Just like the way to have a healthy climate is to emit less or sequester more. Same logic. But it's not asked, well, why am I eating more than I need? What are the conditions for this excess consumption? Why is am I eating because I'm lonely? Am I eating because I'm stressed? Am I eating because I am depressed? Like why? Am I eating because I want some excitement in life? Because I want a break from my tedious routine. Like so so to force yourself to eat less is a perfect example of attacking the symptom while leaving the cause untouched. And that sets up an endless war against the self, an endless struggle of willpower versus desire, which is unnecessary when you do 
see and then change the underlying conditions that's generating the addiction. So yeah, same thing with fossil fuels. And like you were saying, this is not, the solution isn't to make do with less of the, of what we already have. It's a total transformation and it's actually a positive transformation. People will be happier in bikeable, walkable communities than they will be in McMansions where every function has been privatized and made uh, indoors. I, I, I recently watched a Charlie Chaplin movie with my six-year-old, um, the kid it was called, you know, and it's really funny, you know, and this, and there's like no special effects in this movie. They don't even have sound. It was a silent movie. Um, and, but what I noticed, you know, the scenes, like there was public life, there was street life, you know, you would go out onto the street and there were people out there. Mm. There were, there were conversations happening. People were gathering. There were, there were arguments, there were fights, you know, and, but, but it was like life was public. When, when life is public, you don't need so much of the private. So, or you could say, well, you're greedy and bad for wanting an SUV and a McMansion and so forth. And you should make do with less. Mm -hmm. You should make do with less, you know, electronics and less comforts and without your espresso maker and without this and without that. But, but those things are a um, response and in some cases a necessity given the society that we live in. People are miserable. That's why they're addicted. So this, you know, what I'm proposing um, in, in, in my book and lots of other people are, are moving in this direction too, it's actually an increase in our quality of life, but just not according to traditional measures. It may not be an increase in GDP, it may not be an increase in BTUs of energy consumed per person, or miles driven per person, or healthcare dollars per capita. But I mean, you're in the alternative health field, you know, you know that, that the, the, the things that you teach and practice do not require higher expenditure expenditures of right. GDP per capita. Yeah, I, I have a startup where we're trying to tell people that you can spend less. And we're having a really like, like, to me, the argument is even from a completely you know, self-interested point of view is like, hey, if you bring us in, we'll teach your people how to be healthier. We'll get them off their meds. We'll have less reliance. And people, it's like there's a, a brick wall of understanding. Um, I think, you know, I think part of it, is, as, as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking like, we're trying to change the system, but we're using all the same marketing tactics and, and you know, finance structure as the existing system. Like, I think there's some tweaking there, but also just recognizing that we're saying something that just literally makes no sense to people as if we were speaking whale song and, yeah. and right. it was just like background noise. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this, this way of thinking is in everything. <laughs> and, and so I, I think we're on a 500 year timeline of healing one step at a time. Right. And, you know, and, and the, the narrative, you know, uh, was a guy McPherson, like we're all going to be dead in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like there's, you know, one of the things that I hear from people on my side is this. He's been saying that for like 
He's been saying yeah. that for like 10 years, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, Nostradamus is eventually going to be right about everything, too. So, uh, Go on. Yeah, but, um, but that, um, you know, the people on my side are saying, like, this urgency means that there's no, there's no time for debate. There's no time for anything else. And one of, the, like, one of the most beautiful things you did in the book is you kind of, for me at least, rehabilitated climate deniers that they're not – you know, idiots, rubes, evil people, but they have a worldview that I actually mostly share in terms of a distrust of the the elites and the systems that have been, you know, that, that have created this crisis. Yeah, um, right. Like I do make the point if if our if the climate narrative is trust science, then are we also asking people to trust science? when it says that GMOs are safe or that, gosh, I'm not sure how much to uh, come out of the closet here about all the things that I don't trust science about, but maybe you've had experiences in your life that blatantly contradict what science says is real and possible. A lot of people have. Sure. Um, uh, so, I mean, gosh, one of my uh, close relatives was diagnosed with terminal cancer and she, you know, is using alternative modalities and has already outlived the diagnosis. I, I don't know what the end result will be, but these modalities, I mean, if you go on reason.com or quackwatch.com or something, they will be excoriated. They, they will be, there's nothing but contempt for how unscientific these modalities are. Um, and in fact, <laughs> You know, now Internet censorship is reaching a point where where um, information that contradicts the establishment narrative, even in alternative health, it, it gets censored, you know. So so I'm like, yeah, I don't if, if the message is trust authority, because science is part of the structure of authority then that's not a very convincing message to me. I've got to have some other reasons than to, to trust that peer review and publishing and academia is working really well. So there is like this kind of anti-authoritarian streak in the climate skeptics that I appreciate. However, they are not at all receptive to my message because and I get the feeling that they are mostly, not all of them, but most of them are actually deniers, um, even if they're right about certain aspects of climate change. And I'm not saying they are, but even if they are, their their basic narrative is um, the climate change is a hoax or, you know, climate change is a delusion or climate change, whatever. Therefore, we've got nothing to worry about and we can continue to do anything we want on the earth. Like they they are completely unwilling to say, actually, we're causing huge damage and we got to stop. And and anything that contradicts that, they will shut it out. And that to me is what a denier is. So. Yeah, um, right, but, but the, the, the first the very first chapter of the book, you talk about a conversation with someone who became an environmentalist because of his relationship with the land, Be again, because right. of love. You know, my, my neighbor, uh, if we end up showing this on YouTube, behind, behind me, 
um, 82 year old veterinarian, right wing Trump supporter. You know, Hillary's going to come and take away his guns. Uh, yeah. Climate denier. He's preserved over 60 acres and put them in mm -hmm. a conservation easement. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I don't get it, except that he also has the capacity to love and mourn loss. I talked to someone else recently who's um, got this whatever in-law or something who's a rabid climate denier, Trump supporter, et cetera, et cetera, and who also happens to be like a holistic rancher. And he loves his guns, you know, but he's like doing um, this rotational grazing and stuff and having massive increases of topsoil. Like in, the, in school, we learned that topsoil takes 500 years to build an inch of topsoil. But there are guys out there, you know, farmers and ranchers. Um, and it's not just animal agriculture. There, there's um, many ways to build topsoil. Um, but there are guys who are building an inch a year, you know, or an inch every couple of years, not 500 years. So, like, while he's, you know, espousing all these climate-denying opinions, at the same time, he's actually doing more to sequester carbon than pretty much anybody else. Right. <laughs> And that leads to the question, like, do we need the climate narrative or do we need to make that front and center and defining of environmentalism when maybe what we need to do is to is to invite people to fall back in love with nature um, and to give them opportunities to to take care of nature and to protect and restore what is what is beautiful. Yeah, you you. um the last time I saw you, you were speaking in Chapel Hill and you, in response to a question, you said, like, I don't want to live in a world in which someone who takes care of an elderly sick relative isn't valued as highly as anyone else. Some, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, what what I want to get out of this interaction with you and with continuing to, to kind of read and take, you know, this take this vitamin is a deep knowing that I can make a difference even if I can't, you know, even even if I can't, like, change world policy. Right. And can you talk just briefly about, yeah. like, how, how, like, maybe this could be the takeaway for, for this conversation is, what can I do? What can listeners do? What can ordinary people do to make the world a better place, a more, the more beautiful place our hearts know is possible? Yeah, so when we understand that climate change, or I would say ecological degeneration is a symptom of everything about our society, then we know that any healing action that we take is going to, in time, be of benefit to the biosphere. Like we know, for example, so suppose what you really care about is peace, peace building. Well, it's impossible for humanity to be a healing presence on earth if we are at war with each other. Because in war, the highest priority is to defeat the enemy. And you don't care what the collateral damage is to the environment. And your priority isn't going to be there. So people who are working for peace, they're also in service of the healing of Gaia. Um, if your focus is even um, on a smaller level, it could be peace among members of your family or members of your community. That's also strengthening the field of peace that is ultimately of benefit to the world. Um, yeah, and, and 
basically, you know, what the Kogi are saying is that they're, they're emphasizing the importance of ceremony to send a signal to earth that we care about you. We want to be part of this, of this healing. Um, if, if you're sick and you're getting the message right and left that no one cares about you, how strong are you going to be in, mm. in your healing? But so, so we need to send earth the message that we care about you. Even if the rational mind says, well, if I plant a permaculture garden, um, that's not going to scale. That's not going to go viral. That's not going to change public policy. So what good does it do? But if, but it sends a signal, it sends a message. It is a form of communication with the earth. And the message is, I love you. I want you to stay. I care about you. It also, in the language of morphic resonance, it, it creates a morphogenetic field it, or strengthens a morphogenetic field, that, which says, basically, this is Rupert Sheldrake's idea, that any change that happens in one place generates a field of change that allows it to happen more easily elsewhere. So we become part of a new reality, a reality in which we are in love with Earth. So through um, very conventional mechanisms, but also very esoteric mechanisms, any small action is part of a larger healing. I mean, it is impossible. Ultimately, it is impossible to have a healthy planetary climate and have a sick political climate or social climate or psychic climate. All of these things reflect each other. And that means that you can trust wherever your, your healing impulse draws you, whatever you care about, whatever has come up in your life, and understand that there is an intelligence beyond ourselves that knows how to make best use of us and that communicates what that best use is through the organ of the heart that makes us care about something. That's a receiving of a message. Like the message goes two ways. So Gaia is communicating to us or the totality of life is communicating to us as well through the function of what, what pierces us, what makes us care, what, what makes us want to devote our gifts to another being. Like we can trust that we've been put in just the place that we're needed in order to be part of planetary healing. That gets rid of a lot of second guessing, right? Which, yeah. right, that's like my, you know, my second job is like, well, sh you know, I should, every, like I read, you know, Bessel van der Kolk and I'm like, well, I really should do trauma work. Right. And then, and then I, you know, then I read, uh, you know, an environmentalist, like, oh, no, I've got to be on Sea Shepherd, you know? Right. Like there's, there's always somewhere else for me to be that's more important. As opposed to like that, that trust is, I think it's, it's, a, it's an analog of trusting like the earth is going to give me the food I need and the connection I need and my community is going to give me the, the love and support and direction that I need. That, um, and one, one of the things I love that you say in the book is that, you know, there's this, there's this view that, well, the earth will be fine without us. Like, okay, mm -hmm. well, we're, we're, you know, we are going away, but we deserve to. It's like, you know, tough titty for you. You know, you fucked it up and now the world is going to go back to Eden eventually. And you point right. out like, no, that's, that's another form of exceptionalism that somehow humans yeah. aren't needed here. Yeah. Um, in the news recently, there's been this guy in India who's suing his parents for giving birth to him without his consent. 
Did you read about that? I think I saw something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and where he's coming from is, is humans are a scourge on this planet. There's too many of us. So he feels guilty, but he can't help being born. So it's his parents' fault. You know, he didn't consent to that. So basically, um, it's coming from this guilt at being here on earth. And, and what I would say to him, if I had the chance, I would say humans, at least in civilization, have been a, a scourge on the planet, but we don't have to be. Human impact doesn't have to be negative. There have been cultures that understood themselves to be caretakers of the land, servants of the land. And we could transition collectively into a, into a relationship where we understand our, our purpose is to serve the healing and the evolution of Gaia and to, and to say, what is the dream of this earth and how do we participate in that? How do we serve that? And to trust that the planet produced us with all of our gifts for a reason, that we're not nature's one accident, the one bad species and nature fucked up and made humans. Uh, but to say, but to begin asking, well, why were we created by life? To even ask that question already changes our perspective. It's a powerful question. It doesn't even have to have an answer, but it initiates a search and it induces an orientation to service. So I do believe that we are not nature's big mistake. And that we are Gaia's child. You could say to a mother, well, you know, your child is sick. If your child dies, you'll be fine. <laughs> that would be pretty heartless and inaccurate. And I think Gaia loves us that much, too, and really wants us to grow into our destiny, which is not to be the lords and masters of all creation. No. Our destiny is to be the lovers of all creation. And the, and I mean that in even like a sexual sense, like to co-create together, to give birth to something together, um, to give and receive in equal measure. That's our destiny. Let's go out on that note. <laughs> I have so I have many 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 more questions and maybe for another time but um a lot of them are answered in in your in your work so I I want everyone who's listening to this to go out and get at least one version of Climate a new story I have it I have the hardcover and the uh the audiobook um, hmm. for, I didn't know there was a hardcover uh, not a hardcover but uh oh, the, actual, actual the uh, pa yeah paper you know, the trees, physical copy, physical, yeah. physical book yeah. Yeah. Um, um, like it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a, a part of a book club that does mostly like health and betterment topics. I'm going to push this one. I think this is such an important book for, for all of us to read because it's an invitation to, to ease, even in the midst of this struggle to, to finding our own strengths and to accepting ourselves on so many levels and so much healing for people who want the um, the entire oeuvre of, of your work, where can they find you and find out more and stay in touch? Um, well, first, th thank you for those kind words, Howard. Uh, really appreciate 
that endorsement. Um, yeah, my stuff is all on my website, um, charleseisenstein.org. So, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Great. So, and, and you've got you've got books, tons of articles, podcasts. Um, you you travel a lot. Um, yeah. Doing workshops and talks. Yeah, there's more and more kind of video and audio stuff, um, online courses. Um, I, I sometimes I think people aren't reading anymore, so I need to communicate in other ways. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to writing soon as well. I haven't done done a lot of writing since I published the book. Uh-huh. Yeah. The sine wave, right? Yeah. All right. Well, Charles, again, it was, it was wonderful talking to you. Um, I can't iterate enough how much of a balm your your work has been for me for about a decade and a half. And, mm. uh, and so yeah. it's, it's, it's wonderful to have this time to connect with you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it so much as well. Cool. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope that was a lot of food for thought for you as it has been for me. I do believe that Climate, A New Story, is one of the most important books I've read in the last 10, 15 years. And I really would encourage you to get a copy, spread this message far and wide. I think it is a blueprint for how we can make it through this crisis, not only surviving, but transformed to uh, to create this, this more beautiful world that our hearts do know is possible. As plant-based people, we know the kind of world we want to live in. And this message of how we heal our planet is not at all uh, at odds with the message of plant-based living, of veganism. In fact, I think they're, they're very close partners. Now, if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you would like to support the mission of this show, there's a few ways to do it. You can subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can become a patron of the show. If you go to patreon.com and you search for Plant Yourself, you can make an ongoing monthly contribution. It means a lot, both in, in financial terms, honestly, it helps me keep going, and in terms of um, psychological, spiritual, emotional support, knowing that there's people who value this work that I do, these hours that I put in every single week, enough to make a contribution that gets you virtually nothing in return. It's simply sort of living in the gift, as Charles Eisenstein would say, um, that I'm putting out a gift. And if you feel so called to return it in a way that uh, that helps me with money, that would be awesome. And of course, another way is just to share this episode and others with people who would be interested. That's the That's the goal here. The goal of this podcast is not to make money. The the goal is to spread a message, is to raise consciousness. And, you know, the money is simply a means to help me keep doing this in, in bigger and bigger ways. So today's show is number 309. So you can find the show notes with links to Charles site and to uh, climate a new story in case you don't feel like looking it up yourself. You can find that at plantyourself.com slash 309. In garden news, we started putting up a deer fence, seven-foot fence. So we are only going to be allowing uh, athletic deer to to eat all our greens and our and our root vegetables in the garden. You know, the ones who can't jump higher than seven feet are going to have to find their their sucker elsewhere. 
And in running news, oh, not much going on. I've been uh, not doing every day. So I've been trying to, to mix it up. I did a little bit of yoga yesterday, did martial arts today. I have a badass cut across my forehead. We were, uh, we were wrestling with knives. Now, these are, these are plastic training knives, but uh, I still got a bit of a cut. So uh, I'm really uh, ridiculously proud of, of how that looks. Okay, let's let's say thank you now. So, of course, thank you to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Aaron, Jen Blakinovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feld, Victoria Dolomanoa, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina Julian, Roland Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Browns with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bedden, Gil Lazare, David Donahue, Blair Seibert. Lorona Vizov, Gio and Carol and Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Almas, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rootless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan. Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedekar, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Cameron, Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, generally Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divich, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly. Lori, Fanny, Linnea, Lundquist, Valerie, Hummel, Deb, Casilla, Emily, Iconelli, Levy, Wallach, Rosamund, McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen, Leenan, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cards, Deanne Bishop, Bill Bury Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunn, Marie Hagen, and Tracy Gulledge for your generous support of this podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mauro, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harperson, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... 
Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dave McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gun Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.